Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Theatrical Mustang Podcast. I'm your host, Woodzik, and my pronouns are they, them, and theirs. This is episode 147 with Mackay Eastman. Mackay is relatively new to the Denver, Colorado theater scene, and he is absolutely taking it by force. He is a performer, director, playwright, producer on the board of Vintage Theater, and also has a certification in equity, diversity, and inclusion work. We talk about all of that and more in this episode. Hey, if you're listening to my podcast, you probably are going to enjoy the other podcast that American Theater produces, and that's The Subtext with Brian James Pollock. So maybe hop on and listen to one of those episodes after you listen to this one. But now, please sit back, relax, and enjoy episode 147 with Mackay Eastman. I am thrilled to welcome Mackay Eastman to the podcast. Welcome! Well, thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. Yay! So we kind of met online through my dear friend Rita DeCibio, and it's always cool to like connect with the friends your the new friends your old friends are making in theater, if that makes sense. And yeah, then that's I exactly uh, read, I'm just geeking out on your website a bit, and so I'm going to start with kind of a big question, which is I really connected to the statement on your website that you are dedicating your career in theater to giving a voice to the voiceless. Can you talk about where that comes from? How what does it mean to you, and how that's manifested itself so far in your career? Sure thing. Um, so, long story short, you know, I started off being strictly a performer. You know, I went to a performing arts high school. My whole goal was to be an actor and dancer, and I tried to be a singer, but that ship has long sailed for uh, vocal <laughs> lessons at that point. But <laughs> known as a double threat, uh, uh, essentially. What kind of came from that was I was following that path for a while and I noticed that it was very difficult for me to be cast in a lot of things, right? And I'm thinking, okay, well, you know, I just need to work harder and, you know, that'll manifest itself in that way, you know? So I really got into the different acting theories and figured out what works best for me. Um, Reading Michael Shirtleff's audition helped a lot. And, you know, just really getting into building my repertoire as an actor, but nothing really changed. And I sort of asked my uh, teachers for feedback and say, you know, how can I create a more successful pathway to do this? And then they said, oh, well, you know, you're a really talented guy. There's nothing necessarily you need to do. It's just the fact that, you know, your type does not apply to a lot of roles. And I'm like, what? <laughs> what What do you mean by that? And then, you know, like, oh, well, you know, it's just uh, at best I could see you being the best friend or the villain or something like that. And I was like, well, I mean, OK, <laughs> uh, you know, say what you want to say without saying it, I guess, you know, I, I, as a black man in theater who is, you know, I'm pretty average build in five seven and things like that. So you know, I, I guess when the average person thinks leading man, I'm not necessarily what pops into their head. Which you know, whatever. I don't need to be. You know, I never need to be the leading person. But you know, I just wanted to have a career in this. So that, but hearing that, and then looking at the people who do get consistently cast when I was in school, I felt very discouraged by theater period, right? So I, one of my few times, unfortunately, I tried to run away from the entertainment industry. You know, that's when I was probably like a junior in high school at that point. So as I was looking at colleges, I started looking into different, you know, political science programs because politics was something I was very interested in and activism. And uh, you know, I had this new roadmap to basically just say, all right, well, I'll look into, you know, working in government in some way, you know, probably the State Department. I like foreign relations. And then I somehow stumbled upon the, uh, I think it was She's Gotta Have It, the Spike Lee movie, right? And I was watching that, and I noticed that Spike Lee was also in this movie as well. As he he plays uh, supporting characters in quite a few of his movies back in the day, and I was like, oh well, I guess I never really thought about you know making my own stuff. 
And, you know, even talking to my friends who went through the same thing, you know, unfortunately, they just didn't fit the type that the director envisioned. They kind of got put into a box unnecessarily. So I said, well, you know, why don't I just put not pen to paper necessarily, but, you know, put finger to keyboard and, you know, I'll write my own stuff and, you know, we'll see how that works out. So by the time I started my undergraduate career, that's what I settled on doing was, you know, being a writer and director, because funnily enough, I don't think that theater has a lot of writer and directors that continuously do their own things as much as that happens in film. Um, because, you know, usually you just, you know, a playwright is a playwright and, you know, a director comes in and they license out the work and things like that. But, you know, I was like, well, I don't really want to take the long road of kind of shopping around my plays and hoping that somebody says yes to it. So I want to create my own yeses with my friends because they wanted to be actors, but they weren't acting anything because they just weren't getting cast. And they're very talented people. So that's when... I started to, you know, produce my own work and I took extra hours and extra shifts and things like that uh, in order to pay for all this stuff and to, you know, at the very least give them some sort of stipend. I mean, I'm pretty sure on average it was like $100 for one show, but, you know, it's something, right? So I did that and uh, then, uh, so it was with my first play called Fool's Gold. And that's when we were about to um, produce that. But it was at that time when Hurricane Maria went through Puerto Rico and Florida and things like that. And, you know, it, it, it devastated a lot of people in the community, especially a lot of people. I was living in Florida at the time who have a lot of family back in Puerto Rico or, you know, in the Caribbean. So I shifted gears in terms of what the purpose of me doing that particular show was. and we uh, made it a fundraiser for the Hurricane Maria victims at that point. And then from that point on, you know, when I did my shows, I made sure to be able to give back to the people who really needed it the most. And, you know, uh, at the very least, the shows marketed themselves well so that they sold out pretty uh, quickly. And then we were able to donate half the proceeds to a different charity for show so that's essentially what that is and also just taking a lot of stories that i grew up with and you know that my uh friends have grown up with and just seeing the community around me and making sure that our stories get told the way they're supposed to be told on stage by the people who are supposed to tell it not necessarily diffuse through any particular lens and that's what i mean by giving a voice to the voiceless i love that i i'm just feeling lots of emotion right now uh, <laughs> But I love that model. I love that model. Some of the folks that I respect the most in this industry have sort of that model of, you know, mutual aid or community support is built into the work that they do. And I think that's so that's so important. And I love what you're saying about not creating work that's not seen through the lens or not defined by what, you know, the historically the historically what is the loudest voices or the traditions that we have in theater. Do you think that this concept of type in acting specifically does it serve us anymore um my personal opinion is no you know i <laughs> i mean plain and simply i think that if any person can play a role without the story being sacrificed then by all means that person should have a fair shot at i mean obviously you know there are you know certain parameters like you can't do you know you can't do uh, the piano lesson with the same cast as you necessarily could with the traditional Arthur Miller style of, you know, play, right? But uh, ultimately, there's no reason that in that same vein, uh, a Black 32-year-old can't be Chris Keller in All My Sons, or, you know, a non-binary person of color can obviously be Romeo and or Juliet, or, you know, et cetera, et cetera, because that doesn't really change the story. It might change the the setting and the period, of course, but, you know, that's, at least in terms of Shakespeare, that's what people do all the time for very frivolous reasons sometimes, too. So, <laughs> you know, you might as well use it to your betterment, right? Absolutely. I, I feel we're on the same level, and I feel a lot of, you know... I guess I'm technically an elder millennial. So let's say elder millennials down, <laughs> like have this frame with which we see theater and yet we're collaborating or working with or hired by 
or intersecting with folks of other generations who I don't want to speak for everyone as a whole, but the, the point of frustration that I find is when folks are like, well, what does that do to the story? Does that change the story too much to have these different lenses of casting or cracking open these roles? What I really love, my friend Ada Karamanian, who's a casting director, is like, think about when she tries to tease out from directors, what are the qualities of this character? Like, just what what is essential? And mm-hmm. she uses that to then bring you know, bring the director a pool of actors from which they can they can audition and whatnot. I think sometimes the casting folks and and the younger folks are a lot more eager for this. A lot, it's more timely for us, uh, immediate, urgent at some you know on some level. What do you do when you're collaborating or trying to communicate these ideals to folks who are experiencing resistance to them because they've done it one way for so long? That is a very good question, and I don't really think there's an easy answer to that, other than just, <laughs> other than just, you know, doing it and proving yourself right in that regard. I mean, you know, obviously there are like people have biases in life, so that's not that's never going to change, right? You know, my favorite story uh, from when I was a kid was the speeches by Dr. Seuss when everyone got the green stars and then, you know, all of a sudden they were like, okay, well now we have no way to differentiate who is on the top of the social hierarchy. So everyone get your stars removed and everyone keeps going in that, uh, little bit of a loop. And then at the end of the day, the capitalist corporations are winning because they're still just profiting off people getting the stars added into the movie. But, uh, that's, that's kind of how I approach conversations like these. I mean, I guess I'll give another example that a friend of mine brought up with me recently. When I did uh, assistant directing on the play at the Vintage Theater in Aurora called Fireflies, right? And it's set in Winters, Texas, which is a very small town. And there's no regard to, you know, what race the characters are. But long story short with this plot is that it's about an older woman who is sort of you know a recluse you know she's been a retired teacher and she rarely leaves her home except to you know go to community events and things like that but she's really closed her heart off to finding a romantic partner right so um my friend was talking about how different the story would have been if the the vagrant wanderer that comes in you know who ultimately they do fall in love if he were a black man Right. Because inherently in the script, nobody trusts him. Right. It's a very small town of like a couple hundred people. And, you know, he's just seen as this kind of strange criminal crook, whatever. But, you know, he he was played by a white man in Burl Hilt, which I mean, it was a great show. But thinking about it from that lens of, okay, now how could the story have been affected if the actor were played by a black actor? And, you know, the especially in small town Texas, how could that have changed the whole semiotics of the thing to say, okay, well, you know, the person that she's falling for doesn't look like the typical person in this town. And where does that level of mistrust come from? So that can even enhance the story in a more deep setting for the different narrative that you're trying to tell. So I thought that was actually pretty interesting. That does make a lot of sense. That doesn't necessarily have to be you know, a negative thing if you're trying to change the identity of these characters, period. But it does lead to a lot of times very rich conversations that can also be had just by inherently being there. Absolutely. So I guess that's really the, the meat of that is to say, okay, think about the doors that we can open if we do a non-traditional casting. Yeah, I wish more people exercise that muscle in their brain who have who have power. But yeah, I think Hopefully we're making we're making some progress. Um, let's talk more about your work with Vintage because you wear a lot of different hats with them. I do. Um, yeah, recently you closed Dot, which got critical acclaim, was well thought of. Talk to me about uh, was this a show you pitched or uh, was it brought to you? What was that process like? Uh, all the stars aligned in order for me to be able to get that slot, which I'm very thankful to Bernie Cardell for allowing me to do so. He's the artistic director because um, originally I was supposed to be uh, directing a show in the summer, but 
my full-time job is, uh, well, my day job, I would say, uh, is being an EDI consultant, equity, diversity, and inclusion at the Boomer Glass Festival in New York. So uh, I work remotely for most of the year, but I go specifically on site for the summer. So I'm leaving in May and I'll be back in August. But that's why I was like, okay, well, you know, I can't really you know, make that work. So he's like, well, uh, okay, well, how about the uh, the Christmas lot? And I said, oh, you know, I always want to do a Christmas play. Sure, why not? And, you know, he said, have you ever heard of Dot by Coleman Domingo? I said, well, I know Coleman Domingo. I love him. Uh, I'll definitely give it a read. And, you know, reading it, I fell in love with the script as soon as I turned the final page. You know, it was, it was brilliant. Uh, and the fact that the dialogue is very natural is something that I try to emulate in my writing a lot too, because, you know, people do talk over each other unless you're in a formal situation like this, you know, <laughs> people have conversations, right? So uh, the overlapping dialogue and the repetition and the stuttering, you don't get that a lot in plays or scripts in general, even in movies. So uh, that's something that very much caught my eye as well, but also with the story, it's a it's a tragic comedy kind of thing, and you know I think a lot of people were expecting it to just be a farcical comedy, but I think opening that door for having the conversation of a woman struggling with dementia and especially bringing her family together one last time in order to have that final button of a memory of Christmas that hasn't happened in a number of years because at that point, you know, she's unfortunately in a cognitive decline to where the next Christmas, you know, if, if she even is alive, she won't be the same Dottie, uh, the character's name that everybody knew. So just having that last memory, something that's very important to her. And, you know, my great-grandmother uh, unfortunately passed away with Alzheimer's when I was seven years old. So that story did hit a little home because, you know, that was my Nana. I always my formative years as a child were, you know, always going into certain hijinks with my Nana, you know, she'd always like get me to unlock the door for her so that we can run out and run down the street together. <laughs> and, you know, me and this 80 year old woman just sprinting and, you know, my grandmother would be chasing us and uh, my dad would be in the, in the truck trying to catch up, uh, things like that. And, you know, those are, those are memories that I'll carry with me forever. And, you know, I wish that even my younger brothers or my younger cousins got a chance to really know her or meet her. And she was just such a pivotal keystone to many people's lives. And that that's essentially the mirroring of that story is that those memories are what help uh, the legacy of these larger than life people live on and uh that's a very important thing that a lot of people should take with you is that love is always going to be there and you know even in the dark times and the uh, moments that we choose to forget you always at the very least not, may not remember in your brain what those specific moments were but feelings are very hard to forget so keeping that with you is something that's very comforting in that level of story absolutely can you talk me through what you as a director like what's your philosophy what how do you approach auditions and how how do those auditions go for you and then like what's your vibe running a rehearsal room um and production sure so i guess talking about auditions starting off it was um it was a new experience for me because i i don't think i've ever really had auditions like that before I've always usually precast my stuff with people that I knew around <laughs> and, you know, especially writing my own work. I'm like, hey, I'm writing this role for you. Are you interested in that? So this is the first time I actually had to hold open auditions. You know, as an assistant director, I've worked them, but this is the first time I've actually led them. And uh, it was a really good turnout of lots of women identifying people. And <laughs> uh, I really appreciated that. Uh, it came to pure luck that I had just enough male identifying people that I needed and they were fantastic. So I was a little hesitant. I was like, oh, God, I, okay, am I going to have to, you know, really 
put on my educator hat to, you know, get the performance out of them. But thankfully, everybody that showed up, great people uh, and, you know, even more talented folks. So we were able to do that. I pretty much had the show cast in like half hour after auditions were done because that's just how unbelievably good the cast was that showed up. Um, it was just a matter of, you know, who was doing what role that we really had to deliberate on. So uh, that was the, the victory in that. And uh, in the rehearsal room, I, I approach directing very organically. And I know a lot of people say that, but I, I truly mean it because I look at it as if the production is a canvas and I am the artist that walks in and here are my tools. So here's a paintbrush and here are the paint, which is what I would uh, equate my personnel and my actors to. What can I do to take their best qualities and their most natural state of being? And how can I, uh, rather than, you know, superimpose the character onto them, do it the opposite way. So, right. So really having people step into the roles that they're playing as if they themselves were in a situation like this. So it, it's kind of like an outfit, right? You know, this is my shirt. These are my pants, but that they only have shape and meaning because I'm wearing them, right? If I, if they were balled up in my dirty clothes, like they will be tonight, uh, you know, they're, they're just clothes. Like, so that's the character. They're just there. They exist. They have their qualities. You know, I have a, I have a striped shirt on that's red, black, and white. It is what it is, but what gives it real definition is me putting on to it. So I told the actors to think of it like that, right? These characters are frameworks for how you bring them to life. And I think, especially with a script like this, that requires such ardent listening and uh, overlapping dialogue and, you know, the almost like a noise is off kind of entering and exiting at certain points with all these uh, quick entrances. It was just like, okay, how would how would Jadon react in the situation? How would Shoshana or Phil or et cetera? These are uh, names of the actors. So I think that was able to, you know, really click with them. And it also made the process go a lot easier because we were running the show. Uh, we had four weeks of rehearsal. We were running the show by the second. You know, it was just a matter of they had the scripts for a long time. And at that point, we did our table work. We blocked it. We blocked a scene a day. And we just were running and running, getting our bodies. So that was very rewarding to just really fine tune and get as close to perfection as possible that we could have done. I love it. What are there any, do you hold to your heart like a very specific community? I know that the reception was, it was very well received. Were there any comments and, you know, reactions in particular that were particularly meaningful to you? Yes. Um, most commonly, it would be a lot of it's a lot of people in the black community who do struggle with you know having an, a family member with Alzheimer's, and they uh, what was the most common uh, feedback with that is that they felt like it wasn't talked about enough in mainstream conversations. And you know, seeing such a realistic portrayal on stage was a very cathartic, a very emotional uh, feeling for them, and you know, it, it was almost a in a weird way, vindication for what they were going through. And they were able to just kind of step out of the lives that they had and see it through other people and feel supported and not being alone in that experience, you know? So a lot of people were very thankful that Vintage put on this show. And also the again stylistically it's just not something that's done in Colorado theater a lot and they were very receptive to that breath of fresh air something new in terms of you know it's it's a very east coast kind of play you know so and what yeah. I mean by that is there's just a style and a rhythm that you know really comes from these densely urban populated areas uh in the northeast and that was a really revelational experience as to how people can deliver lines of dialogue and things like that. So a lot of people you know, even said that this is some of the best acting they've ever seen. And then 
to that I can attest, you know, like not even in terms of just taking me out of it, but my cast was phenomenal to work with. And, you know, I can't wait to work with all of them again, hopefully sometime in the future. But it, it was such an easygoing process as far as they were concerned to just make the darn thing happen. I love it. Congratulations. Thank uh, you. I wish I could have seen it. So fast forward to now, uh, uh, a very different piece. Tell me all about sophisticated ladies. Right. So in a, as I always say, in a shocking turn of events, I'm performing this time. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm one of the uh, dancers known as a sophisticated rug cutter. Right. Uh, so that we can you know, include all of our friends on the gender spectrum in the cast. But uh, it's directed and choreographed by Christopher Page Sanders. And, you know, if, if anybody out there knows Chris, you know that you're going to be put to work. So uh, thank the Lord I'm getting in shape. <laughs> my cardio has been wondrous for my stamina. Uh, but this is actually a very challenging but rewarding process because it's it's a musical review by Duke Ellington, right? So it's just taking some of his most famous songs and uh, putting them together in not necessarily, it's a loose plot that you can choose to follow if you're a little eagle-eyed or you can just, you know, enjoy the music and dancing. But yeah, so it, we started rehearsals actually a week ago, um, a week ago on Monday. And it it's really fast and dirty. It's just, you know, it, it requires a lot of work at home as well as, you know, taking some time extra uh, at a verse because I think we have a total of 12 rehearsals to do for this 90 minute show. And the music is fast. It's a lot of fun. Uh, I have very few instances of having this much fun in the rehearsal process. So I think a lot of people are going to enjoy it. We open January 27th and run through February, February, <laughs> something like that. I think we'll it's, have, uh, we'll Mar no, that's not true. March, March 5th, March 5th. That's when we close. We'll have, we'll have the date. We'll have the dates and the, um, the ticketing link in the episode description. Um, I just show up. Don't quote me on that. I know. Um, Key, this is a question I wasn't expecting to ask, but what are the ways that we can, I love, I love a rehearsal room that's filled with joy. I love that you just said that. How do we cultivate joy in our artistic process as theater makers? I think it's just getting rid of the institutional hierarchy that kind of developed itself over the last 200 or so years of theater, right? You know, yeah. because yes, the director has a vision and the vision needs to be met under the most, you know, safe and productive circumstances. But realizing that everybody in the room is an artist in their own right, you know, uh, and I wish that I could have had, I could have recorded some very key moments in, you know, my rehearsal rooms or even being in this rehearsal room um, when collaboration really is the key to a lot of these things and realizing that, yes, you are the leader, but you do not necessarily have all the answers. And, you know, everybody can bring their own experiences and their own knowledge and creativity to what they're ultimately doing on stage. So I think giving artists that agency in order to fit themselves into the vision creates a more productive space and also just it creates more laughs it creates more ease and you don't have to worry about just you don't have to worry about the unnecessary stuff that comes with ego and just trying to have something to prove rather than just coming together to just make beautiful art and I feel like, unfortunately, we've lost that in the commercialization of theater. And, you know, it's a lot of people look at the arts as just making the bottom line. And I think we're sort of forgetting that humanity is the key component to doing art. And it's been that way since, you know, we were living in caves or running through the savannah, right? It was, it's just storytelling and it's making sense of the world that doesn't make sense. I love that. Speaking of making sense of the world that doesn't make sense, I love, I really resonate that your day, 
do we say day job? The other work that you do is it rooted in EDI, or I know there's so many acronyms for it, but can you yes. tell me how you came to that work and maybe, you know, how that manifests itself in like perhaps being on the board of directors at Vintage and how you are consulting with other folks, but then you're in a position to be a steward for an organization as well. Yeah, sure. So um, I got my certification in equity, diversity, and inclusion in the workplace from the University of South Florida, right? They did a, they actually did a free online course over the course of the uh, pandemic lockdown. And they were like, you know, just why don't you take this opportunity while you're inside to just better yourself? <laughs> so I said, yeah, absolutely, I'll do that. And, you know, I mean, the, that's something that's very important to me and uh, arts, especially in the arts and, you know, day-to-day life. And I you know, took the opportunity. It was um, brought through my master's program when I uh, got my uh, master's degree in professional communication, specifically with an emphasis on theater producing. So uh, that's essentially how that came to be. And, you know, looking at EDI work, I, I sort of fell into this position at the Glimmerglass Festival, which is um, where I do this as my permanent job. And it was it, it was just kind of being in the right place at the right time because there was an organizational shift happening. You know, they switched artistic directors and, um, you know, a lot of the board members were, you know, moving up, moving on, et cetera. So the committee that I was serving on for the EDI work at Glimmerglass uh, wanted to, under this new leadership, be a more concrete and permanent thing, right? And uh, I'd been doing it for about a year and a half at that point, and they offered me the position to take on that consultant role. And, you know, I, I accepted it with enthusiasm because Glimmerglass, I'd, I'd been at in some capacity since 2019. You know, I started off as an intern in stage operations, which is essentially running crew. And then I moved up to a communications associate. So, you know, handle the press and PR, things like that. Then I sort of adopted that as time went on. And I moved um, to Colorado and they was able to work remotely and go back to the summer. So that's what I did with that. And I'm approaching it from the lens of, I, in a non-selfish way, I want to be the only person in this position at the company. And I don't, I think if somebody has to come in after me, then we're doing something, right? Because ultimately I don't, and this is the tricky part about uh, the, which is now becoming an industry of EDI work, you know, it be, we want to take the steps in order to basically not be needed anymore. And that's what I mean by being the only person. And if something, someone else comes after me, then there's a serious issue, right? So uh, I'm coming in from a people first perspective. You know, we also do have other consulting firms that come in from the organizational standpoint, but I'm, I'm really focused on the employees and the staff, uh, the hired artists that come in and things like that because I want to give them the tools to be able to advocate for themselves once they leave the Glimmerglass campus or, you know, once their contract ends so that they can diffuse that, uh, those tools and their experiences in order to help other organizations and other people and kind of just keep that branching forest going on until ultimately, you know, we don't need somebody to, evaluate our EDI practices anymore. It's just our practice. And that's the goal that I'm really trying to tack on rather than just adding other letters to an acronym that ultimately leads to the same goal of just trying to make sure that everybody can do their job safely, effectively, and also enjoy doing it. That's one of the best definitions and overviews of EDI work I've ever heard. So, um, Thank you for that. It's as simple as that. I mean, it's very complicated, but the bottom line is that that shared goal. How has it been being on the board of directors of Vintage? Uh, it's actually been a very rewarding experience to see how, you know, uh, has such an important theater in the community works from behind the scenes in many ways. You know, I mean, obviously being there's a certain perspective that comes from being an artist on one of the shows. But, you know, just make sure the organization runs itself is a different beast in and of its own sort, right? Um, 
I was actually recently voted in as vice president of the board. And, you know, a, a large portion of my responsibility, and again, will also fall into EDI work in terms of how to, you know, abide by the Colorado theater safety standards and, you know, making sure that the production quality and experiences of the people that work with us is the same as the final product that tends to happen a lot uh, in terms of, yes, the patrons enjoy it and they have a wonderful time. But in, you know, Bernie Cardell, the artistic director, actually says something to this. Uh, we want everybody who comes within these walls to work to have a wonderful time as well so that they can keep coming back and have a place that they can really feel home to. You know, in Colorado, Vintage is my theater home, right? They were the first people to give me an opportunity to work on, on Cinderella. I assistant directed that and kind of, I just never really left uh, in that regard because, you know, it is such, it, it was such a nice place to work that I figured, let me just make myself part of this body in order to give that experience and feeling to other people as well so that they can feel like they have a place to turn to and you know i think it'd be a good launching point for a lot of people's careers in the theater scene here in colorado absolutely absolutely i would agree with that and i you know though colorado is no longer my home i you know keep an eye on stuff and to be able i am so heartened to see you know how many gender diverse folks come through vintage and come through in leading roles and are really able to shine uh and i think that speaks to the culture that is created there and just you know bernie's good people i i you know one of the things i write one of the blog pieces i wrote on my the non-binary monologues website is talking about sometimes it can be intimidating as a non-binary actor to go into an audition where you you know you don't know the folks and you don't know if they're gonna be respectful of your gender or the roles for which you want to be considered and you know with bernie's permission that's uh, you know, that's an email that I quote, I quote all the time, you know, reaching out to him saying like, this is who I am. Like, I'm just, you know, preparing the space before I come into it. I just want to make sure like I can audition for the roles I want to audition for. And it was just the loveliest email. And th this is like five years ago, right? Mm. Like, so Bernie was at that place of, and I think Vintage was at that place or trying to get to that place of, you know, yes, of course, like come in, let us know what you want to audition for. And I love, I have so much respect for the work that Vintage does. And um, I'm glad, I'm glad that you got paired up with them. That's like, it seems like a really lovely match of, you know, artist and home. Yeah, like I said, I'm happy to be there. It's just a lot of the, you know, stars aligning at the right time. All right. Speaking of your very full career play theatrically, talk to me about Memphis at Town Hall Art Center. That comes after Sophisticated Ladies, Yeah. Yeah, so uh, at the Sophisticated Ladies, I'm assistant directing The Color Purple at the Denver Center, and that'll be a large chunk of my time yeah. um, from, you know, for the month of March and April, but uh, then mid-April, I started to Memphis, and Memphis was a wonderful challenge to take on because I'm, I'm directing, I'm co-directing with Billy McBride, and I'm also choreographing it. So this will be the first time I'm I'm choreographing a musical of this scale. You know, I've you know I've been dancing for uh, years <laughs> um, <laughs> since since I was five, basically. Uh, you know, uh, I my mom was a dancer, her mom was a dancer, my great grandmother, et cetera, et cetera. So you know, it just kind of fell into my lap of just being able to carry on that little bit of legacy that they have there. And, you know, I've been in, involved with dance programs and, you know, I choreographed pieces for concerts and things like that, but this is my first time doing a musical. And I'm very, it's a mixture of nervous and excited because I'm like, okay, well, you know, how do I come up with three distinct movement phrases and vocabulary for three, three di distinct people? Um, because, you know, long, long plot short for Memphis is, you know, Memphis is about uh, singer Felicia who uh, falls in love with, well, she, Felicia is black, uh, 
uh, and she falls in love with a white DJ named Huey Calhoun, and this is 1950s loosely based on a true story of Dewey Phillips in Memphis Radio, who was the first uh, DJ to put black artists on white radio in the country. And it, the, the people that I'm focusing on telling the story to make sure that it's not just, you know, oh, look at us, we're dancing, is to make sure that actually serves the purpose of the story. So it's making sure that the actors that are performing the black roles on Beale Street have you know, their own mini subset of the rock and roll culture and how does that, you know, communicate with or antagonize the white ensemble members, you know, who come from the main street of Memphis and how can they overlap as the story kind of coalesces together in that uh, regard because they're discovering the, they're discovering Black music in terms of, you know, being, music and not just the propagated noise or you know race music rebellious whatever but it's just the same way that you know humans express their art in that form so uh how do they adopt that and you know having that conversation of what is appropriation versus appreciation and i think that that's going to be a major thematic element in the show and as well as combining that with the different ages and the different settings because you know how you dance in the club is going to in the first act is going to be very different from how you dance on television in the 1950s which is going to be most of the second act so that was a it, it's a it's a pretty good challenge for me but i think i'm very excited to you know get the ball rolling it's going to be at town hall art center and be open in may and i'm I, i'm excited i wish that everybody could see what's going on in my head and you will <laughs> <laughs> you will, but uh, I, I think we're going to have a very good production. I'm sure. I'm sure. Speaking of things that go inside your head, I mean, your brain is amazing. This is easily one of, you know, one of my favorite conversations that I've had. Thank as of you. Late. Can you talk to me about this new dramatic theory that you're working on in terms of how we talk about and process theater and intersections that it might have with film? Yes, absolutely. So... What I focused on with my master's degree uh, for theater producing in terms of that is just how to make theater the people's art form again, right? Uh, a lot of theater, a lot of it, most of it, is very inaccessible in many ways, right? In, in terms of price, in terms of facility, in terms of location, uh, but primarily, I think art form as well, because film has a very distinct way of communicating with the larger audiences of people in the population, right? And I think it, it's a twofold combination of, you know, just being more closely related to people's experiences and what they go through or want to go through in their lives. And I think it's also uh, a matter of, you know, accessibility and telling the story, right? So, like, you I mean, this is obviously not uh, a sponsored endorsement or whatever, but I love AMC theaters, right? Uh, you know, I, I I got the movie pass to go. I got three movies a week. I go and I just, I watch movies a lot. So that's a very easy way for me to consume that media, right? To just, all right, well, I got three hours to kill. Let me just hop on over to the movie theater and just watch uh, something, <laughs> anything. I mean, now that I have, you know, more options, I will take more risks to watch movies that I've never even heard of with people I've never heard of. But even if I didn't, it's like, on average, $15 a ticket to go in, right? <laughs> and the average, I don't know what the average ticket price off the top of my head is, but I do know the average theater goer in the United States is a 40-year-old white woman making $80,000 a year according to, um, I believe that's the American Theater Wing's uh, publication from 2020 on their annual report. And I was like, okay, well, that doesn't necessarily represent the population of anywhere, but especially the United States. And, you know, I was thinking about the shows that I've done that focus on predominantly Black stories and how many people have come up to me afterwards and say, you know, this is my first time ever seeing live theater or play or anything like that. 
And I didn't think that it was for us, but you know, thank you for doing this. And you know, this was cool. So I said, oh, okay. So I'm I'm seeing a lot of disconnect here. And you know, I even think of my own family as to, you know, how many times when I was in the school play or something like that, they rolled their eyes and like, yeah, Makai, we'll be there. They don't they don't want to go because they don't want to see me, you know, just in the background of Hello Dolly again. I wasn't I was never in Hello Dolly, but that was that was an example. Anyway, all that to say that I approached this theory from taking the most successful aspects of film and taking the most successful aspects in theater and how can we bridge that gap and create art that's more consumable for the general population does not have to, you know, have a four-year university degree in order to understand or to, you know, really want to understand and wrap your mind around that. So that that's how I approach that, particularly from the lens of narrative persuasion theory by Dr. Melanie Green from the University of North Carolina. And you know, she uh, essentially says that in the theory that people are more likely to uh, respond well and have takeaways from stories that they themselves identify with. And as I'm thinking of a lot of the American theater canon, you know, there's not it caters to a very specific subset of people, which is, you know, upper middle class people from Northeast who have a lot of mommy issues. And uh, well, that's all fine and dandy, but, you know, that's not everybody's story. Right. And uh, the dramatic theory that I'm working on is multifaceted in taking a lot of the creativity from film. So, you know, for example, uh, I just watched the ILM documentary um, on Disney and how they got together and problem solved, you know, how do we create the dinosaurs in Jurassic Park or the aliens in Star Wars? And uh, how do we film a whole house getting sucked in and imploded on itself? And, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And they did a lot of these things practically. And I'm like, okay, well, you know, that's a lot of thinking outside the box. I feel like a lot of theaters are afraid to really support and do, especially at the regional and community level because of budgetary concerns, but also, you know, in, in an effort to appease an audience that, uh, that few people realize is changing a lot. And then combining that with the other way in terms of thinking of the the acclaimed actors in a lot of films and, you know, the acclaimed filmmaking techniques that a lot of people really gravitate towards the, you know, one shot takes or, you know, the, I'm thinking of like Knives Out. I watched Knives Out for the first time recently after I saw Glass Onion and loved that and how Daniel Craig learned that entire uh, soliloquy from <laughs> uh, the last 30 minutes of the movie just you know front to back and they just let him roll with it and i was like okay well that's obviously theatrical training and acting and you know how the, people want that but they also want the uh the adventure and the the feeling and the spectacle that you get from film so i think there is a very useful way to combine the two that you know film producers and theater producers can both use as well so there's a lot more overlap in the audience so you can tell stories that actually matter to the population that you want to bring into theater and not just recycling the same old same old things where do i sign up this is the <laughs> <laughs> i mean it makes it makes so much sense and i'm really glad that you're as generous with your philosophy as as, as you were i just I hope everyone listens to this. Like, let's like we're gonna we're gonna send this one out far into the theatrical universe. We're wrapping up our time together. I what what is left unsaid? What what else do we need to share before we part ways? I mean, ultimately, you know, I do what I do because I felt like I had to, right? And it, it's sort of the same way that I pr- approach my EDI work in terms of well, let's say that. And I mean, I'm very happy as a director and a writer, right? I mean, I, I, I'm thankful that ultimately the ends justified the means of getting to that point for me. But, you know, I shouldn't have had to 
come to this realization of I have to I have to create in order to work. Right. And I mean, you know, the love of theater that came from performing for me shouldn't have had to have been sacrificed in order for me to get to where I am. Right. And I feel like a lot of people do that nowadays, especially because not even in terms of money, like fiscal reasons, but it's also in terms of emotional reasons and, you know, mental health and thinking, okay, well, you know, I, I went to performing arts high school, but uh, of the people that I graduated with, you know, there are only three of us still doing theater. And I graduated with, well, I started with a class of 48 and then ended up graduating with 21. So there are only about three of us still doing theater, even though that was all of our dreams, right? And one way or another, unfortunately, it fell by the wayside because those dreams got crushed for a lot of people. And I think taking away that beauty in the arts is going to lead to a self-destruction that nobody wants to have. You, you know, we there are even so many movies coming out. Like, I just saw Babylon in the theater and everything. And, uh, you know, it was a very... It was a very telling expose of, you know, all the behind the scenes things that go with the glitz and glamour of being a successful artist, right? And, you know, it, it, I don't think a lot of people really advocate for safe practices in the way that they need to from an organization standpoint internally. I think a lot of things are, oh, I'm going to put on a good front so that I look good. But at the same time, you have to realize that it's not about the company it's about the people that work for the company because without the people there is no company right and just making sure that we take care of our artists and our technicians and our stakeholders because ultimately it's it can't just be about audiences it has to be about the people who make the product as well and keeping that kindness and that grace in mind as people discover who they are through the lens of art or, you know, tell the story that they want to tell is just something that we have to make sure that we keep championing. Well, I can't think of a better note to go out on. That's really lovely and well said. Thank you, Mackay, for your time and for your words and for the work that you're putting out into the world. We'll have uh, a link to your website and all the projects that you mentioned in the episode description. And really excited to see what you do next. Well, thank you so much. It was a pleasure. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Theatrical Mustang Podcast. I'm your host and producer, Woodzik. This episode of the podcast was edited by C.J. Higgins and distributed by American Theatre Magazine. If you like what you heard, please like, share, and subscribe. Tune in each month for new interviews with artists and cultural trailblazers. <laughs>